0: Listener production. A quick disclaimer before we get started. Although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. All the content and information discussed in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Remember, always consult your doctor before making any decisions about your health. Feeling a little heated? a tad frisky maybe however you like to put it it's sexual arousal we have to thank for the progression of the human race the libido the life force the essence the right stuff technically your sex drive isn't really a drive in scientific terms the word drive is reserved for the things we literally cannot live without like food or water so yes Despite what your partner might say, they, in fact, won't die if they don't get laid. So if it's not a drive, what the hell is it? It sure feels like a drive. Well, that's because it's just as innate and natural as a drive, without all the internal uncomfortableness a drive actually causes. Think about it. We've all had that feeling when you've missed lunch, it's a week before your period, and you're in a meeting with no end in sight. And you're starving. That's how insatiable a drive can feel. Your sex drive is actually an incentive motivation system. So instead of being pushed out into the world to solve a problem... Mother, I'm a growing teenager. I need food. You're pulled into the world by an attractive... Who's that? (laughs) You're coming home with me. When something sexually relevant happens in your environment, your brain's hypothalamus tells your ovaries to turn oestrogen production on. This is really
1: turning me on.
0: And your body, well, it responds. Your pulse might get a little bit stronger, your breathing gets a little bit faster, and you feel turned on. It was only in the 1940s that we actually started studying sex. And although the neurological pathway of desire is still largely a mystery, what we do know is that your hormone production, and therefore your libido, goes through drastic changes as we age. The
1: years of puberty and early womanhood are difficult, even frightening for many girls.
0: But that's not the only time we get a seemingly random surge of the tingles, is it, ladies? Every month, around ovulation, your body starts producing a hormone called progesterone. This guy is the Sam Kerr of reproductive hormones, stealthily rising your body temperature to a level that just so happens to be perfect for the perfect goal to be scored, gestation. Then, estrogen, the sneaky little devil, puts the tingles into overdrive, hoping and praying that you'll fall into the bed of a genetically viable partner and, oops, the miracle of life has begun. I'm so horny and angry all the time, and I have no outlet for it. So when the tingles have seemingly gone on strike, is something wrong? If you're giving rabbits a run for their money, should you be worried? When your libido has gone loco, what's going on? I'm Dr. Snay Wadwani, Women's Health GP and Advocate, and this is Everything from A to V, the podcast separating the fact from the fiction when it comes to women's health. Here, we'll answer some of the most common questions I get asked by women just like you and we'll debunk a few myths along the way too. But we were discussing matters
1: of the vagina, Bruce, not the heart.
0: In today's episode, we'll be joined by sexologist Georgia Grace and we'll talk all things libido. So, Georgia... What's your job? Tell me what it is. Is it real? Is that this an actual job? Surprisingly, because <laughs> it is a dream.
1: But I'm a certified sex and relationship practitioner and basically... What that means is I work in session with individuals and couples, supporting them with a range of sexual concerns or curiosities. And all of my work falls under the umbrella of somatic sexology. So somatic essentially means bringing awareness to the body and it draws on both neuroscience and more of those Eastern practices. And then, of course, sexology is the scientific study of sex. So really we're working with that body-mind connection.
0: Before we get stuck into this, I wanted to address one of the most common myths around libido, so sex drive. You know, we all say it's all in your head. Is that actually true? Sometimes, yeah.
1: <laughs> Sometimes it can be true. You know, I think that a lot of the, the work that I do is in really understanding how we're thinking and feeling about sex we all have ideas about sex that that we've grown up with that um, have been formed by our social, cultural, political ideas, even just like our lack of education. So we do really need to work with the mind and the thinking. But it isn't always just in our head. And sometimes our body has very real and visceral responses to stimulus. And I see this a lot when I'm, I'm particularly working with trauma. And my clients might say, I don't know what's happening. Like my, I, I know I, I'm safe with my current partner. I love them. I want to have sex with them, but there's this thing that happens where I just completely shut down, or I disassociate, or I push them off me, and I, I freak out. And it's really confusing because my mind is telling me I'm safe and this is fun and I want this, but my body is having this response. So yeah, it it is sometimes all in in the mind, and and we do need to work with the thoughts and the psychology. But uh, we also can't ignore how our bodies are responding because our bodies give us so much information.
0: I think you're so right. I mean, certainly in my clinic, I see a lot of women who come and talk about, you know, sex is painful. Mm. And it's interesting when I when I go to examine them, often what you find is that pelvic floor, the vagina is really tight. And in, you're right, it's that visceral response to being touched or examined or, you know, during intercourse, even though they want that, mm. you know, it, it's something is is there in the background, isn't it? Definitely. And, and that's what we see with vaginismus. Like, yeah we could call it
1: a psychological fear of pain. And when I tell people that I don't want to diminish like how physical and how painful it can be, which is essentially vaginismus can be when your vaginal canal sort of shuts, it can feel really painful to be penetrated, or it could also be impossible to be penetrated we need to sort of work with and break that fear pain cycle. Because say, for example, if every time I saw you, I threw a pen at you, then after a while, you'd start flinching when I walked into the room. You would kind of freak out and prepare your body and tense up. So that's kind of what's happening when it comes to penetration. They're thinking, this is going to be painful. So my pelvic floor is engaging, it's clenching, and now it's either really, really painful or impossible. It may be a fear of pain, but it's manifesting in this very real, very physical and painful experience for them.
0: And when we talk about libido being all in the head, my experience in the consulting room is it's very different for men and women, isn't it? Mm, yeah, that that's really interesting. I think in my
1: practice, I find that Actually, the differences are so varied in the individual that's showing up. So often there is an assumption that men or people with penises have a higher desire for sex. But when I'm working with a lot of people, that can be really confusing for them in that they are perhaps in a heterosexual relationship and the man has a lower desire for sex. And they're like, what does this mean for me as a man? Am I not, you know, the the sexual person who I'm supposed to be? And then for the heterosexual woman to identify, like, am I just a sexual deviant? Like, what's wrong with me? Why am I craving sex so much? So I think that, you know, yes, some people will definitely relate to that. and, And I'm sure we'll talk to sort of understanding the differences in arousal and desire Yeah, more and more, I think I'm realizing that desire is just not pinned to gender. And there is a lot that we, I guess, need to do to kind of unpack those sort of social norms and stereotypes so that more people feel comfortable with just their own experience of sex and their desires for sex.
0: So that's a really good segue into talking a bit about women who enjoy or value sex, Mm because, you know, historically, those women have been ostracized or stigmatized because of this. And even now, there's this kind of weird secrecy around sex that completely undermines its role in health. I certainly know that, you know, when I'm talking to women in consults, especially women who've for example, got a bit of prolapse and that Mm. sort of thing. So if you're listening now and you don't know what prolapse is, essentially the vagina is a fairly strong muscular tube. And when it gets stretched or when it's under hormonal influence or lack of hormonal influence, that can affect how flexible it is. So specifically when women have children and they've pushed a baby out through the vaginal canal or they've been carrying pregnancy which pushes down on the vagina, the vaginal walls get really stretched and looser. And unfortunately, after delivering the baby or after menopause, when hormones change, those muscles in the vagina don't go back to where they were. So essentially, you've got this looser looser muscular tube in the vagina. And it means that the bladder can push into it and the bowels can push into it. And also sometimes the the uterus can drop down as well because all those supporting structures in the pelvic floor, those muscles and ligaments have also been stretched. Sex is good for them. It encourages contractions of the vaginal muscles, which can really help to make that better. So sex is good for our health, isn't Mm. it?
1: Absolutely. And I think it's amazing that you are having these conversations because, and I hear this from my clients too, like they will speak with a health professional and it's the first time anyone has even bothered to ask them about their sex life. And there may be so many things that are getting in the way between them and asking like, is it appropriate for me to speak to this person? Like, what will they think about me if I ask them about sex? I'm in here for prolapse and that's way more serious but all I want to do is have an orgasm and get off and I'm worried that they'll judge me for prioritizing pleasure over you know working with this condition or working with my pain. So, yeah, I mean there are so many benefits to sex and I literally speak to this all the time. An orgasm releases all of these wonderful feel good neurochemicals that you you know can surge through your body for a few hours after you've climaxed and that can support us in Obviously, feeling great, feeling more connected to our bodies, feeling more connected to others. Um, it can help with pain relief or stress relief. Like, if I've got something big on, <laughs> like an orgasm is one way to just kind of bring me back to the present moment. And also, just the fact that pleasure feels good. And unfortunately, I think it, we do live in a world that prioritizes being productive and busy and efficient over enjoying life, experiencing pleasure, but you have all of these erogenous zones, why not use them?
0: I think it's so important, isn't it, as well, in a relationship. You know, there's often couples who are not speaking about it, not saying what they like and what they don't like, and then they're just stuck having Mm. these really uncomfortable, unhappy Mm. sexual relationships, which is just bad for everybody. It's bad Mm. for the person you know, on the receiving end, it's bad for the person who's, you know, keeping their mouth shut and just cracking on and thinking of Britain, I think we say in English, <laughs> lay back and think of Britain or whatever. It's it's just not
1: great, is it? Mm, and I find that often, you know, when we, we move into a, a phase of Intimacy, where you feel so connected to your partner, you love them so much, you know, you you pay the bills together, you've seen them shit a thousand times. Like it can feel really tricky to then move from that person that is comfort and safe and intimate and all of those beautiful things of a long-term love to then wanting to talk dirty to them or wanting to be really descriptive or, you know, be called certain names when they're having sex. And it's that sort of awkwardness of moving from the everyday into a sexual deviant or into the, the sexual person who they know they are or they want to be for even just 20 minutes sex can be awkward but it can also be really rewarding when you can get past that awkwardness and just sort of lean into that desire
0: and i think that's that you know sort of leads us quite nicely on to where i wanted to talk to next you know when women are going through their menstrual cycle right it's really variable how they feel there are times when they're just like please don't touch me i don't want to be anywhere near in fact i don't even want to look at you um, yes. and then there's times <laughs> when they're just like yeah yeah i'm ready to go mm-hmm. So the cycle, obviously, there are hormones changing and and we know that certainly when the body is preparing to ovulate and preparing to receive the sperm to get pregnant, the body is naturally, the desire will be slightly elevated because of those hormones women are different in that space aren't they like i said before there is there are some women who you know want to have sex during the periods and some women who just don't
1: mm, yeah it's such a good point and i think that it's fascinating to hear and to learn about what is going on for your body hormonally. But again, we can look at all of it on paper and every individual will have a different experience. I know that for a lot of people, when they're ovulating, they feel shit hot, like they're confident, they're motivated, they feel sexy, their desire is high. But then I'll also speak to many menstruators and they will say that they're more turned on, they're more desiring of sex when they're bleeding, that everything feels more sensitive, that all they want to do is have sex. Like they have that sort of um, lubrication of blood that makes sex feel better too. And then there's people who are like, I'm in so much pain when Mm. I'm having sex that it's literally the furthest thing from my mind. I just need to crawl up in a ball and get through the day. So... And then, of course, there's everything going on. Like, are they on contraception? You know, what, what sort of methods, what medication are they on that might also be having an impact on their cycle? Perhaps it's more useful for the individual to, yeah, get a sense of maybe what's going on in the body, but also just to track it themselves. Like, when do they feel most desiring
0: of sex? Yeah. I think the only thing I would add in there is these um, menstrual trackers are not very reliable, mm. are they? I yeah. don't know what experience you yeah. have with those, but I, I love now when I say, when was your last period? And they go, hang on, let me get my phone out, yeah. you know. And I think it's a handy way of sort of noting where you are, but it, I, in a sense, it's it's making us lose connection with what's happening in the body.
1: Yeah, and, and everything we're feeling because it can be such an intense experience to be a menstruator and it can I mean I've been bleeding for years but I'm still surprised (laughs) like (laughs) there will be days I'm like why is everything hard why don't I like anyone (laughs) why am I not good at my job and then I get my period and I'm like well it all makes sense and now I can look forward to ovulating (laughs) and feeling hot (laughs) and sexy for a few days.
0: (laughs) Yay go you. (laughs) So menopause, mm. yeah, this is a really interesting transition through life. I almost call it, um, you know, puberty in reverse, mm. <laughs> sort of. And the the hormonal change is there. You know, the drop in estrogen, the drop in testosterone, can really have effects on a woman's libido. Mm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is a very very real experience. And I find that a lot of my clients. Are really fearful of this, like fearful of losing their sexual identity, you know, how how um, much they value sex, that because of aging, there may just be something that's going on in their body and they may have to relearn what feels good. For some people, experiencing orgasm can be more challenging, which is, of course, like a, a really intense thing to go through it's never a binary. There's so much room for this individual experience because I have a lot of people in perimenopause, like whether they're in their 40s to 50s, and that they identify that they are the most sexual they've ever felt, or they feel so comfortable and confident in their body that they're having the best sex of their life both can be true. And and there may even be space in between where, you know, people who are listening will think, well, that's none of my experience. And, And that's also totally normal. I think that if it is concerning for an individual, of course, seek professional support. There are so many ways to navigate that. You know, it might be as simple as looking at tools like Lube, not enough people are using lube. Every single person should have a good quality lube in their bedside table if they're having sex and it can really transform sex. But it might also be looking at certain toys that you want to use or incorporate. It may be speaking to a therapist, maybe you know looking at what's going on for you hormonally to see if there are any things that you can do there. But if it is a concern, there's so many options out there.
0: And just talking about lube, Mm. There's some makeshift lubes happening out there. Oh, God, it is dangerous. It's
1: quite (laughs) scary, isn't it? Do
0: you see people coming in? Coconut oil? Yeah. Oh, don't do it. Yeah, it's bad.
1: It's terrible. It can really mess up the pH. Absolutely. (laughs) And
0: thrush, here we come. Yeah, yeah. And there's
1: nothing (laughs) sexy about that. God. Yes. So this is what I hear all the time. People, you know, even on TikTok, people like, just use olive oil, use coconut oil, use spit. And... None of it is lube. I don't know what it was like for you, but when we were growing up, it was like strawberry-smelling lubes that were just you'd get from a servo. And I mean, because you're British, I don't know
0: <laughs> <laughs> what you had. I don't meant... know if they sold them in a servo. It, it that's a petrol station for yeah, the Brits. Sorry, out there. sorry,
1: gosh, wow, <laughs> from the northern beaches. Um, it was yeah, it like so. St- icky and tacky and gross and it stayed on your skin for literally like days that i think that a lot of people are kind of scarred by that experience of it just being so gross and feeling not great but lubes now are body safe and and this is really important to make sure any lube that you're buying it's body safe it's suitable for internal use and that there aren't i mean i would always recommend not going for any tastes or you know intense smells but yeah just making sure you're getting lube and not using the alternatives
0: yeah and for those women who are you know postmenopausal where estrogen has caused some thinning of the skin mm. in the vagina or even women who are postnatal you know I think we forget about them you know there's all this thought around okay they've delivered a baby they might have had a cut down below mm. or they've had stitches or they've had forceps and that's why they're tender but actually sometimes it's the hormones as well mm. the lack in estrogen postpartum that can just make the the vagina a little bit dry. And, and there are, you know, there are some great hormonal estrogen creams to use down there in that space. And for those women who can't use those, there's some good non-hormonal vaginal lubricants as well, which I think, you know, if you don't know they're there, you don't ask about them. You just kind of assume that there's nothing for you. And so from your perspective, I know what I see in the consult rooms, but women on contraceptives, you know, mm-hmm. do you see that affecting libido much?
1: Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I I really do. In, you know, conversations that I have with people, but also in what my clients will discuss. And it can be really radical shifts that they've either gone on a new hormonal contraception and or they've gone off it and their body is, you know, taking time to regulate. That yeah, it can have a huge impact. Of course it's not for everyone and and some people feel they are completely non-affected by it, but Lots of stories of people saying, I am on this new pill and now I don't feel that connected to my body. I'm not feeling a lot of sensation. I'm noticing changes in my mood and I'm also noticing changes in my desire. What do you notice?
0: Well, I think that's exactly the case. You know, commonly it's the you know, the mood has changed. And, and sometimes they can't add the two together, you know. The, the mood has changed and my libido's changed. Well, maybe it's cause and effect, you know. Yeah. And I think that's really important as well. And, and although there's no perfect contraception, I think it's really important to try and hit the key areas as much as possible. So if libido is important, for somebody that I see, then I'm going to be changing their contraception Mm. if they want to do that. Because, you know, if that's more important than a bit of spotting now and then, then, hey, that's okay. We'll live with that, you know? Yeah. Wow. God, I wish everyone had access to you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you'd change so many. Well, I mean, lucky there's this podcast now. (laughs) Exactly,
0: exactly. So we talked a bit earlier about the discrepancies between sex drive in men and women and you know i often hear these stories from my usually my postmenopausal women mm-hmm. and they just tell this story about how you know they're going through the menopause and they hate their husband or their partner and they don't want to have sex cuz they've got no libido and and at that age their partners really still up for it mm-hmm. and then they kind of go through the menopause and they come out the other side and it seems that their bodies kind of adjust to the new hormonal levels and then they're ready to go and then their partner has prostate problems. <laughs> oh no. It's just <laughs> not sinking. It's not fair, is yeah. it? You know. So, I guess it'd be really good to talk a little bit about, you know, how do you navigate, you know, the discrepancies mm. between sex drive between two people in a relationship? Mm. That's a tricky one. It is
1: but I love working with it. Like I, It is an area I love working with because there's just so much that we can do and so much that we can do actually quite quickly. So I think that it is truly impossible within a relationship, even if you love this person so much, for you to be constantly synced up your whole life. We don't want to eat at the exact same time as a person every night and you know we may not want to have sex at the exact same time so desire discrepancy essentially refers to any time that you do not desire sex at the same frequency or at the same time as the person you're in a relationship with so what I'll do first is actually inform them of the difference between desire and arousal so people will often conflate the two so arousal is the physical response that we have in our body And that is an erection, lubrication, nipples getting hard, cheeks getting flush, feeling like all sensitive. So all of those physiological changes. But desire is more of a motivation, a wanting and a longing for sex. It can feel more emotional, more mental, more psychological. And often people will be waiting for those physical responses to tell them that they want to have sex. And it can be really confusing if they they don't have the physical responses but they desire sex. But it can also be really confusing if they have those physical responses but they're like, sex is not the thing that I want to do right now. So we look at the difference between the two. And it's particularly important within heterosexual dynamics because when we're looking at arousal for someone with a penis – arousal can be pretty quick. Like if you've ever seen a a penis become erect, it can be, I mean, depending on the person, but it can be a few seconds. For someone with a vulva, it can take a lot longer. Like it can take 20 to 40 minutes to be fully physiologically aroused. And that's not to say that they can't climax within a few minutes. You know, if you've got a great toy or a great technique, like you actually can. But it's looking at sort of the the network of the the clitoris like looking at how engorged it can get and there's nothing wrong or too much about taking that long to to get aroused but it's just because we largely understand sex and have researched sex through prioritizing you know pleasure or the experience of the person with the penis so yeah I feel like I'm on a bit of a monologue at the moment. But I think that that distinction between arousal and desire is really important. And then we kind of look at the different ways of experiencing
0: desire. So I guess it's really normal for libido to ebb and flow, right? You know, whether it's you've had a baby or you've gone through menopause or just life. Mm, it changes all the time. And I think when it feels
1: so tied to our identity or even some really great experiences at the start of a relationship. So we know that when you're first dating someone, typically it's the most frequent and and pleasurable sex you can have. I mean, that's a, a very common narrative and then what can happen over time is that sex can become less of a priority. You know, other things Take importance. We can't live in this new relationship energy because we wouldn't get anything done. And it's kind of important <laughs> for it to take that course because if we've got butterflies and we're thinking about this person and waiting for them to text us all the time, like it's <laughs> kind of hard to be a human. But yeah, yeah, it desire changes all the time. And there there are a lot of things we can do to bring desire, you know, front of mind again. But sometimes it is just life stages as well.
0: And so, in your experience, if somebody came to see you to talk about, you know, libido, and you know, sexual function, and all of that, um, when would it be red flags for you if there were issues with libido? So, you know, if they if they had a complete loss of libido, what would make you kind of go, "Hang on a minute, mm-hmm. something's not right." Mm-hmm you need to see a doctor or actually we need to be thinking about something else? Mm. If it has been a really
1: sudden change and they are unaware of what's happened, if we can't pin it down to things that are going on relationally, things that are going on at work, how they're feeling in their body, and there's just this sort of inexplicable change in their desire for sex, if it is having an, a really taxing impact on their mental health, if it's all they can think about, you know, it's completely all-consuming, if they're feeling really disconnected from their partner and it's distressing and they are, are not feeling fulfilled in the relationship. So we would take some time to really get clear on some of those things, we might also map out a bit of a timeline. Like, when did you notice it changing? What was going on for you in your life? Usually, we can pin it down pretty quickly and they will say, oh, of course I'm not desiring sex because all my partner and I are doing are arguing at the moment and I find them so infuriating that I don't want to have sex with them. Or, of course I don't want to have sex because my partner hasn't looked at me or touched me In weeks, and then they roll over in bed and say, Should we? And I feel so not in the mood for it because I haven't had the time to feel connected to them. More often than not, we can really figure it out. But yeah, if it is those sudden changes, I might sort of suggest that they yeah speak to a doctor about it as well.
0: Yeah. And I think from, from the clinical end, that sort of medical side, you know, if the, I agree with you. If it's a sudden change, you can't pin it down to anything else. And there's loads of tests that we can do to see if there's an underlying, you know, physiological or physical cause Often there isn't, like you said, you know, but it, but it is worth checking that out. But for mm. centuries, <laughs> there has been this endless pursuit mm. of, you know, increasing the sex drive, you know, Horny goat weed <laughs> uh, is, is, I think it's a really, I wonder if that name came first or they figured out that it had an effect and then it got that name. I'm if not It's act-
1: trademarked. I yeah. love
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what have you heard being used and
1: what actually works? so much. Like, I mean, chocolate, oysters, there's all the aphrodisiacs, there's all these libido pills at the moment. People have rubbed things, they've sniffed things, they've done everything. They've inserted them into their anus <laughs> and they've lost a few things up there. There's, you know, if, if it exists, if it's on Google, people have tried it. And there's really no clinical evidence to suggest that any of these libido pills work at all. There, There's really no evidence to suggest that any aphrodisiacs like eating an oyster or, you know, sipping on a champagne actually makes you desire sex. However, what we can do is we can look at the context that it creates. So say, for example, you're, you've you got some chalky dipped strawberries, you've got a glass of champagne, you're doing something romantic, you're taking the time to connect with your partner, maybe you're kissing each other more, you might think, oh, This is fun. I'm connecting with you. Or if you've got your horny goat weed and you've got your libido pills, and every day you're saying, I'm taking this because I am working on my libido, or this will fix my libido. I'm thinking about sex more, I'm bringing it front of mind more. That perhaps is what is potentially affecting your desire. But I, I can also say that I've had so many clients come in who have said, What is wrong with me? I'm broken. I'm trying all these pills. I'm trying all these things and nothing is working for me. I'm even worse than I thought. And I think that's really harmful and dangerous. So more often than not, we need
0: to look at the context than taking a quick pill. Absolutely. I think I I was just going to chip in there and say, I think when people use these supposed cures, Mm. you know, there is a dependence or a um, you know an assumption that a yes they're broken and this will fix it and it, it, there's a real disconnect there isn't there because they don't do that
1: yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it's and it's just yeah i mean it's heartbreaking because the the pills are expensive they really set you back and often like it is a lot of I would say an easier fix when, when we're actually just looking at the cause. But because we're so geared around buying that thing to to, to help it. us <laughs> rather than maybe examining some other things that might be affecting the relationship, your body or your desire.
0: So what advice, what top tips would you give women who feel quite disconnected from themselves sexually?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the first thing is to get a sense of what what is this cause? Why are you not feeling connected to your body? A, a really common thing is I'm not feeling sexually confident or I don't know what I want. I'm, I'm not feeling connected to my partner. So once you get really clear on that, then we can work on it. I'd also actually recommend everyone buying Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are, in the book, and she also has a workbook. She works through the two ways of experiencing desire that really exist on a spectrum. So at one end, it's spontaneous desire, and that's that urge for sex that comes seemingly out of nowhere. On the other end of the spectrum, it's responsive desire, and that is looking at how much stimulus you need in order to bring sex front of mind. And when we can really understand that we can look at all of those things that are maybe accelerating us and and turning us on or that are our breaks and are turning us off. And then we can look at how we can manage and remove some of those breaks. More often than not, the, the person with lower desire will come to see me and they'll say, I need to be fixed. But actually, if you're in a relationship, everyone involved will have responsibility. And the person with the higher desire will be also having to think about what can I do to create this context that feels safe and sexy and fun for my partner. Get that book. And then, of course, I think like if you have been thinking about it, if it is a concern, You may not need to go to multiple sessions. It might be a quick trip to a sex-positive health professional who can really answer some of those questions. It may be seeing a sexologist for one or two sessions. But if it has been on your mind for a while, you are certainly not alone, you are certainly not broken, and there is so much out there that you can do in order to have that fulfilling sex life you want.
0: I think opening that dialogue is really important, isn't it? Because, you know, you often find once they've started talking about it, that in itself takes away some of the pressure and just opens the door to libido. Yeah, one one great
1: open question can just feel like such a humanizing experience. And no doubt you see that all the time when you ask your patients. A
0: hundred percent. So... It's been fantastic talking to you today. And I love that we've opened the box on libido, this underreported, unspoken, secret topic Mm -hmm. still. Hopefully we've, uh, you know, empowered a few women to talk about this a bit more. Uh, Where can people go if they want to find out more about you and what you do? Probably the easiest place to find me is on Instagram
1: at gspot.underscore. We won't forget that. <laughs> find the G spot, Um, And yeah, there. from there, you can find my website. You, you know, you can find information about sessions and, and all the work I do.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So there you have it. The female libido does exist. In fact, succumbing to the whim of your libido in a consensual sexual relationship might actually be good for your health. If you feel like your sex drive is out of whack or you're not feeling in tune with your sexuality, there's no shame in consulting your doctor or sexologist. There are solutions to your arousal problems and it might not just include horny goat weed either. Be sure to join us next week for some more debunked myths and your health questions answered. This podcast is a listener production hosted by me, Sneha Wadwani. Producer is Kelsey Menzies. Executive producer is Todd Stevens with sound design by Kelly Falston. Listener